Allow me to introduce to you Gary Matheny, author of eight books with more than 40 years full-time in God's service. He and his wife have been missionaries to Romania since 1991. He has a treasure trove of true Christian stories that will entertain you while bringing out the principles of God's Word. Hi everyone, today we have an amazing story, a very amazing story of witnessing to a man. Uh, first, I want to tell you about the first time I'd ever witnessed to anybody. Uh, shortly after I was saved, I started attending this church, and after a few weeks, the pastor came up to me, it was on a midweek service, and said, uh, what are you doing tomorrow night? And the next day was Thursday, and I had no church service, so I figured he was going to invite me over to his house and his wife would make uh, me a big meal, and what guy in the Navy wouldn't like to have a home-cooked meal? And I said, well, I'm not doing anything. And he says, great, you can come out tomorrow night. We have Thursday night visitation. And we're, and I said, visitation? Well, I wouldn't know what to say. I, I couldn't go. And he said, that's okay. You don't have to say anything. You're going to be the silent partner. Now, the way they match people up, they'd have one person who had experience at witnessing to people and telling them about their need of salvation and how to go about asking Christ. And the other person was just to sit there or stand there if they were at the door and listen intently and uh, look interested. I was interested, but I didn't want to go. I didn't. I just, uh, I just was glad I was saved. So that Thursday evening, I came by, and the pastor matched me up with this 19-year-old kid. At that time, I would have been 24, um, possibly 23 and a half, I guess. And and this young guy, he he liked arguing, and he said, "Man, where's, let's go get him." And I didn't want to get anybody. <laughs> I, I didn't really want to be there. And but I thought, okay, I'll be the silent partner. Maybe I can learn a few things. The first house we went to. Uh, a lady came to the door, and, and she recognized my partner. She says, oh, good, I'm glad you're here. My son's an atheist. I want you to talk to him. And I thought, oh, no, we got to go argue with some uh, atheist. But in we went, and she sat us at this long table, and uh, my partner and the atheist were sitting across from each other, and I was sitting down at the far end of the table uh, wishing I wasn't there. And it was basic, you know, both sides were arguing their points, one why he didn't believe and one why he should believe. And I was looking at the watch thinking, how long is this going to go on? Now, this whole thing lasted about an hour, but about 45 minutes into this uh, witness, uh, the atheist looks at me. Now, up to this time, I had said nothing. I was sitting there waiting to get out. I was planning on faking sick when we got out of there and said, I can't go on anymore. I didn't want to be there. And the atheist looks at me and he says, what are you doing there? And when he said that, he pointed his finger at me. And I thought, oh, no, I've got to say something now. And I thought, why am I <laughs> anyway? And I said the only thing that I could think of, which was true, I just simply said, look, I just think God wants me to be here, okay? <laughs> and he said, oh, and he went back to arguing with my buddy, okay? I tacked it on the end. It was sort of like, leave me alone, you know? And you know what? The Holy Spirit gave me joy for that. It was like God was saying, hey, that's good. You finally stood up for me. And uh, I started smiling. In fact, I was having a hard time not smiling. I had this joy inside of me from God's spirit. And the atheists looked at me two or three times trying to figure out what's he so happy about. And when we left there, 
the guy who was leading, uh, I said to him, where are we going to next? I wasn't going to fake sick. I didn't know there was joy in this. And so we went and we talked to a, a young lady at the door and uh, it went okay. And But I was interrupting him all the time. I wasn't trying to be rude, but I didn't know there was any fun in any of this. And I was having such joy. I wanted to start telling other people about Christ. Now, let me tell you about this amazing true story. His name was Yarwin. That's how we pronounced it in English. He was a Vietnamese naval officer during the Vietnam War. Some of you veterans who served in that time might take an interest in this story. His job was he had a patrol boat on the Mekong Delta, and I'm not sure how many other people were with him, but he was in charge of these small river boats. Apparently, they had a machine gun on it, and they would patrol the, the river. And in 1975, when Saigon fell, um, they called him on the, the radio and said, the war's over, come into port, lay down your arms, and you'll be put in relocation camps. And uh, I asked him about that and how the war had ended, and he told me that part. And I said, well, how long were you in the relocation camps? They told us we'd be there for four months. And I said, was that how long it lasted? He said, no, I was there for four years. The other people apparently did spend, uh, the non-commissioned officers apparently did spend a relatively short time, and then they were released. But they were more leery or more concerned about the officers. And he had a, a chain around his ankle, and he was staked to the ground. And for four years, that's where he lived. He said there were several other officers in a roped-off area, chained-off area, I guess. But none of them could leave. They were all had an ankle a chain and staked to the ground. And they'd feed him. And for four years, that's where he lived. When he got out, he went back home, found his wife, and says, We're leaving. I can't serve these people that I fought. I'm getting out of here. And let's get the kids. And they had two uh, small boys. And she said, look, we can't do this. Uh, They're cutting the heads off of people who are trying to escape. I'm just afraid to to chance the the lives of our son. And no, we can't do this. He says, well, I can't live here after all they've done. I'll go to America. And when I get there, I'll send for you. The four years spent in captivity uh, would small in comparison to what would follow. Now, Yarwin had gone on this boat. He showed me a picture of it. I mean, it didn't look like a boat to me. It looked like it was three logs or beams somehow tied together. And there was, I'm going to say, maybe a half a dozen, maybe 20 other men uh, that were fleeing. At that time, the people who left the Saigon, the people who left uh, South Vietnam were called the boat people, and he used his skills as a, a Navy pilot. Uh, he could read the stars and to navigate by, and fortunately, the, uh, the Lord gave him clear weather, and they went to Malaysia. It took them a, a week to get to Malaysia. Once there, they were put in refugee camps, and uh, then after a year, he was able to enter the United States and came up to Washington State, the state I was then pastoring in. Now, once in the the States, Jarwin looked for a job, found a job, got a place to live, and started working on getting his family over here. Um, He went to the Red Cross. You know, at the beginning, it was hard to get people out of there. And uh, years went by. Eleven years went by. 
and things started to open up, but then he didn't have the money, and he was trying to communicate with his wife through letters, and then he received a letter one day after 11 years of being apart from his wife and telling her he's going to come to America and send for her. And she says, this isn't working, and it's not going to work. And why don't we just go our separate ways? <laughs> you know, after fighting the communist and being in a communist prison camp and risking his life on the high seas and spending 11 years trying to get his family, and then receiving that letter, it pushed him. It pushed him over the edge. That was the day that I knocked on his door. I never met Yarwin until that day. And by chance, I call it chance, as the Lord would have it, I knocked on his door for the first time. Now, while I was in Bible college, uh, we had chapel twice a week, and one of the chapel services, a pastor had come in and preached about witnessing, and, you know, we can't get people saved unless we try. And uh, while he was talking about that, he was saying that, you know, you should make a vow to God that you'll win one person a week and witness to one a day. And I thought about that, and I realized it was good to witness. Uh, Christ has called us to be a witness unto him. But I thought, well, I can't make a vow that I'm going to win, but I could at least make a vow that I would witness to one a day. And um, so I did. And I set out, I thought, well, I'll just round off each month. I'll come up with 30 witnesses in a month. And I kept track of that. And I, I didn't do it. That first month, I fell short of 30. And I tried again the next month. Uh, I can't, it was even less. And then I, quote unquote, I just forgot about it. And I just pushed that to the back of my mind, and I had another year or so of uh, uh, Bible college. And then upon graduation, I went up to the Northwest, and I was a associate pastor in this church. And one day, a preacher, well, I was at this conference, and this preacher said, you've got to have a plan to accomplish the things you want. And if there's something you want to do, you got to figure out how and when you're going to do this you can't just have that dream and not put some feet to it. You can't just have this dream and not figure out a way that you can actually accomplish it. And the whole time he was talking, I was thinking about this vow I'd made to the Lord and how I'd just given up on it. And I thought, well, I'm going to make up a plan. How am I going to keep my word to the Lord? And I thought, well, I'll just pick a certain day of the week that works for me. Uh, somebody might do it after their normal work or on a weekend, but I, I had to come up with some way of writing down, making a simple mark in the back of my Bible uh, where I had witnessed to somebody, and I suppose somebody could say, well, you're notching your gun, and I, you could look at it that way. I had to make sure I wasn't deceiving myself, but I was really making up, uh, doing what I told the Lord I would do. And so I had a day uh, I had a plan. I had the plan of salvation. I memorized it. I had it marked out in my Bible. And off I went to knock doors. We used to call it cold turkey door knocking. I just go door to door in neighborhoods, leave a track, invite people to church. And even if someone wasn't saved, at least I was planting the seeds. 
I was witness to about six times uh, in the Navy before I ever asked Christ to be my Savior. And some of them were not real good witnesses, at least not according to how I would have gone about it, but they cared for my soul, and I appreciate that. So off I went to plant seeds. And I, I want to emphasize, you don't have to go door to door to do this. You may have another way. It was just something that I planned and it worked for me. And I figured I was behind about 500. I also wanted to make up what I didn't do. I had witnessed on a fairly regular basis all through Bible college. And I was out of Bible college now at this time. And I was still witnessing. And time to time, I'd win somebody to the Lord. But uh, I wasn't doing 30 a month. I was backlogged, a guesstimate as best I could come up with, around 500. Plus, I had to do the 30 uh, witnesses a month. So I emphasize this a little bit because it's it's a good thing I was doing going out and witnessing, however you might go about doing that, giving the plan of salvation. But it's a bad thing that I had told the Lord I was going to do something and then I didn't do it. Uh, Two verses here about what God thinks of people who tell him they're going to do things, they vow unto him, and then they don't do it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, remember, we're not just making a promise to some man, we're we're telling God. And people do this sometimes to get out of a war, or maybe they think they're not going to come back alive, or some jam, some some really bad situation. God, if you'll do this for me, I promise you I'll do this. Anyhow, the verse says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. And that's what God called me. And anyone who tells them, God, I vow I'll do this for you, and then they don't do it. God said, My new name was fool. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. That's the end of the quote from Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4 and 5. So God says, it won't be a sin, it won't make God upset if we don't vow and not not do something. But if we tell him we're going to do something and we don't do it, um, I recommend to people they don't make very many vows. We all make the marriage vow, to death do we part, for better or for worse. And there's a few other things maybe in your life you might have made a vow for, and maybe you forgot about it like I did. (laughs) I can guarantee you God did not forget about it. And I was convicted, and so I thought, well, I'm going to make the 30, and I owe God 500 that I need to make up. And so I set off to do that, and I had my plan, and I went out there, and the first month I didn't make it. The next month I I did, and I thought, you know, I can do this, and I'm having a joy in witnessing, and so I'll I'll stick to my plan. It's working. And I thought, anything over that 30, then I'll just subtract it from the other 500 that I, I believed I owed the Lord. This went on for nine years. I know, because I had it marked in the back of my old Bible. It went on for nine years, and I was keeping up. There was maybe a couple of months where I didn't make 30, but the next month I'd do more, and I'd go out. I had that time, and sometimes I could do it in an hour. I got pretty good at this. (laughs) And uh, 
and sometimes a little more during the week, or perhaps at church I'd witness to somebody, but I kept a record of it. But I was not making much headway on that backlog of the 500, and I sat down and I thought about this. After nine years, I'd only made up 100 extra witnesses. <laughs> the Lord's going to come back before we get this done. I was doing the 30 a month, but I hadn't made up the rest. And so I, I sat down again. I made a new plan. And the new plan, same day I'm going to go. I'm going out there. I'm going to be prayed up. I'm going to be ready. But I'm going to, after I get my seven in for that week, seven witnesses, four weeks coming up, you know, at the 30, if it was only 28, I'd go out and get a few more. But I'm not going to stop. Because usually I would just stop after seven. I thought, no, I'll do at least one more. And, you know, by doing at least one more, that would have been another uh, 50 a year. And I thought if I get two or three, the better, and that'll help finish it up. And by the way, I did eventually finish that up within a very, I don't know, I think it was only like two years later. Now, I've said all this to say Yar Win, the Vietnamese uh, naval officer who had fled his country and was in America trying to get his wife and, and two sons back. Uh, they had been braced, be together, be a family again. And, and he had received that letter from his wife saying, what hope is there? That was the day, that was the very day that I'd come up with my new plan, that I would not only try to make my... I was going to go out and make seven witnesses and then try to do a couple more. And so off I went. I know what day it was. I wrote it down in the back of my Bible. It was April 24th, 1989. That was the day I met Yarwin. That was the day I knocked on his door. And that was the day he'd received a letter uh, from his wife. I had witnessed to, on the street both sides. I'd gotten seven witnesses for the week. I was headed towards my car, and I remembered, no, I, I got to work this new plan. I'm never going to make this up. So I'll, I'll knock, knock the adjacent street and get a couple more witnesses in. And the first uh, door I knocked to, a lady came to the door. I spent quite a bit of time talking to her, about 15 minutes, and... Uh, then I went uh, down her driveway and up to the next house. And the next house, the door was open and there was nobody inside. I didn't hear any noise in the house. So I knocked on the door jam. And from around the corner, a man came with the towel wrapped around his head. Now, you understand the towel was wrapped around his, it was wrapped around his face. You couldn't even see his face. And he came to the door and I'm looking at him and <laughs> This was strange to say, say the least, uh, and I tried to talk to him. I he mumbled something. I could not hear uh, anything he was. I couldn't. I could not understand anything he was saying. And then he fell down on on the floor right in front of me. I mean, I'm outside on on the doorstep there, and he's right inside the door. And here's this total stranger. He falls on the ground right in front of me. And, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't feel very comfortable there. And I noticed that there was some stains on his towel. And I said, uh, are you bleeding? And he said, yes. And that was the first word he said that I could understand. And then he pulled back uh, the towel and there was blood all over his face. Uh, there was a couple of teeth 
that had been knocked out. His one eye was bulging. And, uh, you know, I, I had fear come over me. I didn't know, is this domestic violence? Is this some kind of terrible accident? And here's this man laying at my feet, basically, and, and blood on his face. And I, I'm not a medic. I didn't know what to do. So I I ran next door to the lady I'd witnessed to just before and told us, ma'am, I don't know uh, your neighbor. There's an, a man over there. He's bleeding very badly. You must call the, the, the paramedics. And so she did that. And half the neighborhood came over there. And there we were in the living room of his house. There must have been it, about a dozen people that came in. And, and there's a couple of ladies who had him on the couch trying to, you know, help with the bleeding. And you could see that there was a bullet wound under his chin and powder burns were there. And the, the bullet had exited out uh, uh, right behind his hairline there on, on the top of his skull, uh, on the top of his scalp. And the ladies asked, how did this happen? And he said that, well, he had done it to himself. That letter had pushed him over the edge. That letter he'd gotten from his wife. And I, standing there, here I am, a preacher, and <laughs> what am I doing? So I said, listen, can we have a word of prayer? And everybody says, sure. And so I prayed a short prayer and asked God to, to help him live. And, and to be honest, I didn't think he was going to live. And when I got done praying, I walked over to him. I said, listen, sir, uh, uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever asked Christ to be your Savior? And he just shook his head, no. Now, I did find out later he had uh, watched some religious programming, and so he had some uh, knowledge about this. And I said, well, let me, let me tell you something. When Jesus died, there was two other men that died that day. There were two thieves. Sometimes you see a picture of three crosses and Jesus' crosses in the middle. And I believe that was the hand of God. I believe that was God saying, I want everybody on earth to understand how to get to heaven. And I asked the uh, Yarwin, I said, sir, do you know why Christ saved one and not the other? And he's looking at me and, and you know, <laughs> a lady had put a towel on his head to try to keep the, the blood. You could see it pump out every night. It was something. And he shook his head no, but he's listening intently to me. And to be honest, I thought this guy's just going to die on the spot. And I said, well, because one of them asked him. He uh, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, which is heaven. He knew it was his kingdom, and he knew he could get him there. It would be like somebody saying, hey, think about me, please. I want to go there. And Jesus said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Their bodies went into the grave. Christ's body rose again from the grave three days later. That other thief, both thieves, their bodies are still in the grave. But that very day, he took that man's soul and today thou shalt be with me in paradise. <laughs> he didn't earn it. He wasn't. He didn't have the Lord's table. He didn't. He wasn't baptized. These are all great things. You should do them. But they don't save your soul. Jesus saves your soul. And that man put faith in Christ to do that. And uh, you say, well, what's feeling would I have if I do that? <laughs> I imagine that thief on the cross probably felt crucified. But at least he had. When I die. I'm leaving this place, and I'm going to go to a place a whole lot better. And I asked him, and I said, Sir, could you do that? Could you ask Christ to be your Savior? 
and he's listening to me. And I said, "You, it's, it's simple. You just admit to him that uh, you're a sinner like all men. Uh, we're all sinners. Uh, the difference is some of us are forgiven and some of us are not. And Christ came to, and died for our sins. He made us and he died for us. And it extends an invitation to you. The Bible says, for whosoever, that means you, it means me, it means anyone, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I said, could you trust Christ for your salvation? And he nodded his head, yes. And then I said, well, there's a simple prayer you could pray. It, it has these, you know, basic things in it. You, you recognize you're a sinner before God, that you need his forgiveness. You believe that Jesus also died for your sins. And you personally call upon the Lord to forgive you of your sins and trust Christ to take you to heaven when you die. And he, he said he would do that. Now, he did something I didn't expect him to do. I even told him, now, you can pray that in your heart because, <laughs> I mean, his jaw was busted from that bullet. And some of his teeth, they even had to wipe some of the teeth off his cheek. I mean, this guy's in bad shape. And uh, I, I prayed the prayer. I prayed it slowly. And, and, and so he would repeat it. And I say, I said, just repeat after me in your heart, dear Lord. And he says it out loud. Friend, uh, uh, there was blood gurgling in his throat when he tried to speak. And he'd say, dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And he'd, he'd repeat that. And uh, I, I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, died for all of my sins. And he'd repeat that. Sometimes I had to repeat it just so he could repeat it because he'd forget or is having trouble speaking. And, and, and right now, the best way I know how, I ask Jesus Christ to come into my heart. And, and he prayed directly, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and cleanse me and forgive me for all my sins. And I said, you pray that and say in Jesus' name. And he did that. And um, about that time, a great big helicopter landed right out on the street in front of his house. And uh, this is before the police get there. We're all in the house. It took them a while to get there. And you go, woof, woof, woof. boy, this helicopter came right down on the street. Out jumped a couple paramedics, and they run out there. And another person was bringing a stretcher. And, and the first thing the paramedic did was put a, a take his blood pressure, put this band around his arm, and he got done taking his blood pressure, and he, he said out loud, I don't know how this guy's doing it. I mean, he's bleeding, he's still conscious, he's still talking, and uh, he had at least walked for a minute or so before he fell down. Now, the helicopter flew yard to Harborview Medical Hospital in Seattle. I drove over there the next day to try and see him, and I talked to his doctor, and he said, uh, listen, there's been an operation. All the bullet didn't exit, and uh, and there's even some left in there, if I remember correctly. Uh, and uh, it was the frontal lobe of his, of his brain, the inside of his uh, hairline there. And uh, I said, well, I, doctor, I got a question. I mean, it did enter his brain. He said, yes. I said, is he going to be normal? 
And the doctor said, well, <laughs> that part of your brain's not that important. That's why he said to me, I, I thought it was all important. I don't want to lose any of mine. So anyway, uh, he said, we'll just have to wait and see. Now, the only thing, that, and it, the first time I noticed it, it was about a month to six weeks after he was let out of the hospital. He was in the hospital a full month. And about six weeks after that in church, he did have a blackout. He did fall down on the ground, and we were <laughs> worried and concerned. But in about five minutes, he gained consciousness. And this was a problem that would happen from time to time and found out there was a medication that did solve that, and that went away. But other than that, we, we know of no known problem uh, associated with that bullet shot that self-inflicted a gun wound. I came back about a week later, and uh, by chance, he was coming, he was in a stretcher, and there was two people uh, rolling him down a, a hallway, and I, I could recognize his, his face. And and I said, Yar, and, and his mouth was bandaged over, and I kind of waved at him, and he sort of nodded his head. And I said to him, I said, the, you had an operation, and he put his fingers, two fingers up. <laughs> and I said, you had two operations, and he nodded his head, yes, <laughs> oh boy. And uh, I came back again about a week later, and he was in the room, and he, they had removed some of the bandages, and uh, maybe it was a couple weeks later, and he could speak. And and on this third visit, I, I wanted to give him assurance of his salvation. You know, a devil can come by and say, well, you're not saved. You, you, you've sinned after you were supposedly saved. Well, you know what? Uh, John the Apostle wrote in uh, 1 John, if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And he was an apostle, and under inspiration of the Spirit of God, God had him pen that. He didn't say you people, he said we. And uh, the truth's not in us if we say we have no sins. So he put himself in that boat along with everybody else. And uh, we'd like to believe, and certainly uh, the less sins you do, uh, the happier you will be and better testimony and many other things. Uh, but we are still, you know, in a fleshly body. We still have a sin nature. There's still temptation. And I wanted to give him some assurance. I said, look, I was in my family. I loved my dad. I loved my mom. But I didn't always obey them. And But, you know, my dad, he never threw me out the window. And And God says, I have everlasting life. And I could easily say, and it would be certainly true, I don't deserve it. Now, nobody does. And I read in the Bible, I said, look, uh, the Bible says these things, this is in 1 John 5, 13, uh, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have e eternal life. And 1 John uh, is, is back in the last part of the New Testament, just before the book of Revelation. And so I've written... The Bible says that you may know that you have, not maybe, that you can know, not guess, not have a feeling, that you may know. It's based upon what's written in the Bible. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you that ye have eternal life. And I asked him, now how long's eternal life? Well, <laughs> forever. Bible says you can know. Bible says you have. 
eternal life. And the Bible says that's why it was written in God's word. So it's not based upon one of our relatives' opinions. It's not based upon the priest or pastor or missionary, as good as they may be. It's based upon what God has said. If you don't go back to the Bible for your assurance, there's always going to be doubts, all right? So God says you can know, and God says you have it. And all the people in the Bible who were saved, many times your faith has saved you. It was past tense. It's happened. The word of God says you have passed from death unto life. Unto life. Uh, the thief on the cross got saved in a, just a few seconds simply by placing his faith in Jesus Christ, where the rest of the world has placed their faith in themselves. Yes, I believe there's a God, or I believe Jesus is God's son, and if I'm good, I'm going to heaven. Now tell me, where's their faith at? It's not in Jesus, it's in themselves and their good works and their good deeds they've done. They need to take their faith out of themselves, out of their religion, and trust Christ. Now Yarwin, after he got out of the hospital and got back home, I think we waited a few more weeks, and then we started picking him up and driving him to our church. And he sat on the front row, and he began to sing praises to the Lord. And he said, you know, I, I asked him if he'd ever asked Christ to be his Savior. He'd said no, but he had been listening to some religious programming before that day. Um, and he was later baptized, and uh, we helped your win. Uh, we raised the money there in the church, uh, the greater part of it, and uh, for his wife and his two sons to fly from Vietnam over here to uh, Seattle-Tacoma Airport, SeaTac, it's known as. And uh, a lady in our church uh, used, had Yar Win uh, translate for his wife uh, the plan of salvation, and she also had asked Christ to be her Savior. Now, his two sons at that time, if I remember correctly, were both around 14 years of age, and uh, they had graduated from school, got good grades, these kids were studiers, and they went on to the university. Both of them graduated from the university, and they're both successful. And um, I, I will say that Yar has passed away. It was some. Uh, he lived about thirty years after all this, and I'm happy to say there was another addition to his family. They had a third son here in the states. Uh, I think just a few years after she uh, and her other and their other two boys were back here. I want to close with this this passage here. It's found over in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Did you hear the word saved? Have you heard that in your church? I was raised in a church that never even mentioned being saved. It was in a Navy barracks when I asked Christ to be my Savior. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich, unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, that's Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 8 through 13.